you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, it is Super Bowl week here at the Huddle and Flow podcast, brought to you by Intuit, the proud sponsors of QuickBook. TurboTax and Mint. I am Steve White, joined by my guy Jim Trotter. We are two thirds of the Howard mob. The other third, Thomas Warren, is back in the house. And we're also joined, we have an honorary bison, Jim Steve Manny, also helping out of the ones and the twos. Thomas has the one, Steve's got the twos. And Jim, this is a really, really special episode that we have today. Go ahead, let, let them know. Let them know what time it is. You know what though? We we say that every week because it seems like it just gets better and better. And 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 oh, one of the great things, yeah, for us about this podcast is we're able to bring on people that we really want to talk to and hear from, and they never fail to bring it. And and today, it is Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Bucks, who was gracious enough to take time out of his week, um, in terms of preparing to face the Kansas City Chiefs, to join us on Huddle and Flow, and. Todd brings it. Todd brings it. So for those of you, we, we go we go some places with this interview, Jim. We do, and and there'll be some like in New York and whatnot. They say they only know Todd as this stern guy, serious guy, and whatnot. But um, Todd actually had us busting up a few times. So it's that kind of interview. Um, it deals with the serious. It deals with the fun, and I think the audience will enjoy it. Yeah, no need for us to talk X's and O's because Todd does that masterfully. So, Jim, let's not waste any time. Let's bring on the Buccaneers defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles. All right, Jim, now we're joined by our special guest, a good friend of ours and someone we know well, and that's Buccaneers defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles. Todd, thanks for joining Jim and I on the Huddle and Flow podcast. Good to be here, guys. You know, Todd, we got to thank you here. You know, it's Super Bowl week. You got your defense. 
you're getting it ready for the game. So to take time out to spend it with us, we're truly appreciative. Oh, I'm appreciative, one. You guys are the stars. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> See? Oh, here we go. See, dude, here, here we go. go. You here we go already, coming. man. You, you knew it was coming. <laughs> All right, Todd. <laughs> well, well, speaking of that, Todd, how you know you 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 guys are in a, in a real unique situation in terms of. You know, you're hosting. You're you're you get to go home at night, right? You're not having to deal with all of the festivities and stuff of a Super Bowl. How has the preparation been with the off week and this week, knowing that there's not as much fanfare or anything around this game as there normally would be? That's been the strange part because it's at home and you don't see it because of the pandemic, so you don't get to go out and see all these festivities going on. It's been kind of like a normal game week. You know, last week was really a normal game week. This week, because of media blitz and everything else, it's kind of picked up a little bit from a practice standpoint. We're kind of doing the same thing we've been doing all year, which is, you know, it's it's great because you get to go home and sleep at night. You know, you want the guys to enjoy Super Bowl if it was somewhere else like L.A. or Vegas or anywhere else, but – because of these times that we're at home, it's really been almost like a normal practice week. Todd, what, what's been preparation? What has your preparation been like in terms of install, those sorts of things when you've got two weeks between a game? Well, you do your meat and potatoes last week. We did all that last week because, you know, this week with all the obligations for everybody, that was going to be kind of tough. So you do your meat and potatoes like a week ago. And then this week, you just try to fine tune everything and not overthink it and make sure the guys are fresh and some guys get banged up, get a little healthy, and you just continue to just work away and get ready for Sunday. Todd, what, and, you know, it was, you know, Devin White talked about this. Some, the fact that you guys played the Chiefs in week 12, you've got some tape. You do have some familiarity with personality and tendencies and stuff other than just tape, but just knowing how certain guys react to certain situations. And that situation was you guys coming back after falling behind quickly. What is having played them fairly recently? How does that apply to the prep and what to expect on Sunday? I don't think it applies at all. It was one game, you know, just like we beat Green Bay early in the year. The championship game was completely different. The fact that we played them, and they're a great team. Everybody's played them. They played their division twice, and they beat everybody there. So, you know, we just got to correct our mistakes and play our type of ball game and hopefully get them to play our type of ball game. They got a lot of talent. They have great players. They won it last year. It's hard for us to get back here just this one year, and they've gone back twice. So, you know, they're mentally tough, and they're very well coached. Coach Reed does a great job with those guys. The enemy, Spags, all those guys do a great job, and they've been here. So this will be new for us. So they're allowed to be a little calmer. we got a lot of younger guys, so they'll be a little more excited, and they should be. It's the Super Bowl. You know, it's hard to get to this point. But I think once the game starts, whoever executes the best is going to win. Ty, what was your biggest takeaway from that first meeting? Uh, they, they got by us in the first quarter. I thought we panicked a little bit early on, and they ran by us, and they made some plays. We made some mistakes, but a lot of it was due to the plays they were making, not because we made mistakes. And, you know, we learned from that. Hopefully, as the season went on, we corrected some things, and, Try not to let it happen on Sunday. But I think it made our younger guys, especially in the back end, mentally tougher. You know, I thought it shocked them a little bit after the game. And it's, you know, you play a game every week, you got to get rid of it. 24-hour rule, whether you win or lose, blow out, close game, you got to get rid of it. And I thought as the season progressed, a lot of the older guys like Sue and JPP 
and Shaq and Levante help those guys mature from games like that and understand to take it more professionally and try not to let that happen again by doing little things. And I think that's helped us a lot. How much has it also helped the fact that there are certain things you can't simulate in practice? For instance, it's difficult to simulate Tyreek Hill's speed or suddenness, if you will, um, or maybe some of the motion in terms of the efficiency that the Chiefs use and whatnot. Having seen it once before, do you think that that gives your guys a better understanding and a better appreciation of what it is that they are about to face and how to handle that? Well, I think from a speed standpoint, you know how fast they are. You can't simulate that in practice. We don't have those type of guys, but it's not just him. They got Hardman and they got Watkins and they got a bunch of guys that can run very fast. So, But they have seen the speed, so we understand we got to play fast to start the game out. Hold up. All I'm hearing is Scotty Miller chirping that he could beat Tyreek Hill. <laughs> so the, the eight tied. They want to go. talk about – if they want to go on a dirt road somewhere after the season, I don't care. Wait, wait, wait. If they do, Todd, who are you putting your money on? I'm not putting my money on either of them. Go play the Powerball before I do that. <laughs> Hold up. So, 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 Scott, so Scotty's not Tyreek on the scout team? No, Scotty has to take normal reps. You know, Scotty has to take main reps and get ready for the ball game. He can't do any of that. Oh, okay. All right. But but t- tell me this. And it's funny when, when I watch the Chiefs, and we always talk about the speed on the outside and, and the pre-snap motion. But it looks like a lot of their blocking schemes up front are also to trick you to get off of your keys, like some of the, you know, the ghost stuff that they do with Kelsey coming back, you know, to, to block on the opposite side, some of the things like that. Is that as disruptive in terms of trying to keep guys disciplined, at least early on with some of the stuff that they do during the actual play itself? It is because they're, they do it a lot faster than all the other teams. They have faster guys, they're a little more crisp when they do those type of things. So it really gets your eyes going one way or the other. We've seen it all year, and everybody's doing it. You know, the Rams are doing it. The Saints have done some. But they do it at such a fast pace with their guys and with such speed and have so many things off of it that, you know, they can get you if you're not on, on top of your game. Tom, when did this, did, did this season start to click for you guys defensively? I know there was a point midseason where it seemed like things weren't just right. And then all of a sudden, you guys found that rhythm, and particularly in the playoffs, um, you guys have been bringing it. Was there a point for you where this unit went to another level? Was there anything that happened that contributed to that? No, we started out fast. The first six, seven weeks, they were playing great. And as guys got banged up and nicked up, I thought they didn't know how to play with injuries very well. And a lot of guys were nursing some things and tried to fight and play through them. So I thought we had about three or four weeks where we didn't play well. And then as guys started getting healthier and understanding what was at stake and just trying to have mental toughness and talking to the older guys, you know, it started clicking again and everybody was very selfless and trying to do their job and not anybody else's job. And then things started coming together. And the more they saw it clicking and working, the more excited they got. It kind of brought us to this point. So we know your safeties are a little nicked, but overall your secondary, when I've been watching this postseason, they are bringing smoke. 
I mean, whether it's not letting receivers off the line of scrimmage, whether it is tackling with with just absolute fury, how important is it for those guys to be disciplined yet play with that type of physicality in a game like this? It's extremely important to be disciplined in this ball game, as we as we know from the first game, they can run right by you. The physicality, you know, I think the biggest thing about Kansas City, they scare you because of the run after catch. They get the yak yards, you know, Tyree can turn a three, four yard into a 60 yard game. You saw it against Buffalo. It was like watching a Madden game. So, you know, everybody getting to the ball and making sure he only gets about three or four yards after the catch and not 20 to 50 is, is a big thing in the game. That's probably just as important as the ball going over your head. Tom, one thing we know about you, you like to bring some pressure. Um, but I'm interested. Their offensive line appears to be so banged up. And maybe I'm biting the cheese here. You know, coaches always say, don't bite the cheese. But I look at how their offensive line is banged up. How does that influence in terms of how you go about attacking that unit, and attacking that offense? Well, they're so banged up, they made it to the Super Bowl. <laughs> you really- <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to go there with that look. When you lose your starting left tackle, your other tackles banged up. I mean, they are banged up now. So go figure. So they can't be uh, that banged up. All right. All right. I'm not biting that cheese at all. We're expecting to see their best. They got great players over there. The line is probably not as known as the skilled guys, but they do all the dirty work and they play tough ball. And if you ever notice them, in the running play, they're always pushing the pile. There's not a play that goes by where that offensive line isn't pushing the running back forward and pushing the pile. So I know they coach very well. So we got to play a good ball game. You can't I be. Known you, I, I should have known you weren't going to bite on that. Oh. I should have known. <laughs> he wanted to, Jim. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but about, about Patrick Mahomes, I mean, he. He seems to always have some type of exit route, whether it's scrambling with two guys on him just to dump it off to a, a running back who lost the block, whether to you know to, to run the ball himself. How difficult is it? Because he doesn't just extend plays, but he makes things happen even when he's in trouble. It's tough because he has the most canny ability to get the snap of the ball and see his escape route right when he's getting the ball. He knows if there's more than four guys coming. He knows who's slow and who's fast and who's going to go inside on the move. And if there's a certain game working, he knows he can get out of it with certain things. If not, he'll back up a couple steps and buy even more time until he does see it. So he has two or three options that he can do. He can run to the side and he can throw it downfield. And when he's running, he's very accurate, or he can sit back there in the pocket and he can let the guy get further down the field so where the backers get far enough in pass protection to where he can run the football. And it, it's not by accident or anything that you can see it because it happens every week, and he does a great job at it, and that, that's tough to do. Ty, can you speak to what impact Levante David has had on, on Devin White and that relationship between the two? I think he really taught him from a mental standpoint how to watch tape and how to be a pro and understand angles and pass drops. And Devin's a great player, no doubt about it. Devin comes and he hunts and he loves to play the game. He's a ton of energy. 
Lamonte is like the big brother that's letting his little brother shine some. You know, if there's a play to be made, Devin probably has more wild plays, but Lamonte has just as many plays. And he does, Lamonte is probably technically sound. Devin's run and hit, you know. He's the cow to run down the hill and chase all the, all the, <laughs> he's the guy to run down the hill and chase all the cows. And Levante will go down, take his time and go one by one. But the mentally, they challenge each other every day. And it's great to see in practice who has the best hands, who has the best get off, who has the best. This. Devin will challenge you on anything. You know, I don't care what position. I can get off the ball better than you, Shaq. I can catch better than the secondary. I, can, I mean, he's a bundle of energy. And Levante is the only one that keeps him under wraps. The, <laughs> the only Sounds like <laughs> it looks like Devin loves to chat, too, out there on the field. Am I right? Oh, he loves the game. You know, he's an old school player. He loves to play the game. He's Mentally, he reminds me of a younger Ray Lewis. Not physically, because Ray was one of the greatest I've ever seen play the game. But mentally, just the energy he brings per play, and he's working towards that mentally, just getting guys around him to gravitate and make plays. He has that type of energy. I did not say the player, because Ray is one of my favorite players of all time, and I will take that to the grave. But I've seen him in his prime, and I can't name one or two guys that do that better. But Devin has a lot of energy to bring to the game. You know, Todd, players often talk about being on this stage, the biggest stage there is in football, and what it means to play under those lights. For you as coaches, can you speak to what it means for a coach to have an opportunity to participate in a game like this? I think it's a great thing to get there. These are hard to come by as coaches. You know, you, you can go your whole career. And I, I've been as a player, you know, I've even scouted for Green Bay when they went. But to go as a coach, you hold your excitement in because you got to win the game to be really excited before you exhale. But it's a great accomplishment because you work hard and everybody has families and everybody sacrifices just like the players do. And to get to this point, you know, it's a gratification to a certain degree, but at the same time, you got to finish the job. Todd, when you went with Washington, that was the, the Doug Williams game, right? It was. What, I mean, you know, look, that to me, you know, I was at Howard University at the time, and, and I just know how that has impacted us, the city, so many black folks, you know, it, it's still hailed, you know, it's made Doug royalty, right? What was it like as a player to just kind of experience that whole ride, and then especially that second quarter when Doug put on a show like he did to win MVP honors? I don't know if I enjoyed it as much as a player because it was my second year. I was starting free safety, and I was like 22, 23 years old, and I saw Doug every day in practice, and we knew how good he was because he killed us when he was a scout team quarterback. Our scout team team was better than or just as good as our first unit. So now but, go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say Doug was better than Jay Schrader. Well, he was. I think Doug had a little bit more poise. And we saw our whole scout team was pre- pretty good with Doug and Brian Mitchell and Clarence Verdan and Derek Holloway and Mark Slareth was there with Raleigh McKenzie. I mean, we had guys. That our scout team was like unbelievable. Frank White, mm. <laughs> we had a scout team that was like second to none. So we saw him every day. 
we saw him every day do it every day. And when we started out bad, they got a touchdown on the first drive, and we were down 10 nothing. But once he got going, it kind of happened so fast. And we it was it was unbelievable to see in person. We didn't realize the magnitude of what he was doing at the time, but because we were in the game. But I mean, it was outstanding. That second quarter was like, I mean, it was it just clicked from there. And you know, just going into halftime, we went in the same tunnel as those guys. You could tell they were defeated. But when you, real real quick, Jim, when you look back on it now, though, I mean, I know you said in the moment because you were twenty two. You really didn't understand it, but now looking back at like the historical impact, and you and Doug are still tight. You know what? What I mean, what what is it like now looking back on that? Well, it's 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 unbelievable now to see how big it was and how humble he is as a person. You know, Doug's still the same guy he was back then. It said a lot for African Americans back then for. It was real tough back then. We think it's tough now. It was even tougher back then for him to break that mold and, you know, to get to say he was going to Disney World. I mean, that commercial, and I was in that, by the way. Probably by mistake. I was, I was walking next to him. <laughs> you did it on purpose, right? You knew what was coming. You stood next to him, right? They showed a whole different shot. I was like, hey, there I am. <laughs> that commercial every time it came on so I would make sure everybody saw me <laughs> the magnitude of what he did and how he is as a person to this day it, it's so understated but he did more for us uh, people of color than I could ever imagine at this stage in my career and I know Jim Brown and all those guys played and everybody's done a lot of things but while I was in that moment I thought he was the guy that did a lot. You know, as a segue there, um, Todd, when we talk about people of color and how difficult things are, we can talk about the head coaching profession now in the NFL. Over the last four hiring cycle, there have been 27 vacancies. Only three of those vacancies have gone to, to black men. And I wonder from your standpoint, like Steve and I talk a lot about it on this show about the unfairness, the inequities, all of these things. And people will always say to us, why do you guys talk about race all the time? Why do you talk about race? And in part, we do it because we feel like coaches such as yourself, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some of them feel they can't speak about it for fear that it might impact their abilities to climb the ladder, the coaching ladder. And so we feel like we have to give them a voice. And I wonder if you can speak to just what, the climate is like what minority coaches are feeling right now when you watch these openings come up. And yet by every objective standard, you can make the argument that black men are being passed over for these jobs who are qualified and capable. What are those conversations like for you all in, in, in the coaching community? Well, there's a lot of frustration, especially with college coaches trying to make the jump to the league and NFL coaches alike. And, you know, all you can do at the end of the day as, as coaches to set an example, you can be the try to be the best you can be at your job to show them hard work, to show them dedication, to show them that you can do all the things the right way. And then if you get a break that way, that's great. But you can't make any progress if you're not working hard and doing the right thing to be a good coach. You know, it's. We're African-American. That's been well documented. We wake up every day. We look in the mirror. I see. I don't need to go to the beach to get a tan. 
I'm <laughs> right there and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of who I am and what I am as well as the other coaches are. But, you know, you try to talk to the guys and you try to have seminars and you try to tell them just to be, don't look to advance, look to be the best you can be at your job so somebody can notice you and give you a hand to move up. And it's been tough. It's been tough. And it's like you said, it's been 27 of them. It's only been three, but it's been tough and the needle's got to move more. I think they keep asking us what's wrong. Everybody knows what's wrong. We can't solve the problem. Everybody else can solve the problem until those people start speaking up that needle's not going to move very much. So, I mean, we, all we can do is coach and be the best we can be. The enemy, Leftwich, myself, a bunch of others. There's, there's a lot of good coaches in this league. As there are a lot of other coaches in this league that are of different races. But you can't, until they start making it, move the needle and say, that's Coach Bowles. You, can, you don't want to say that's Coach Bowles. He's a black guy. You just want to say, right. well, we got here by coaching football. Not because of, believe me, Bruce is not going to hire any charity cases. I guarantee right. you that. He's not going to hire any charity cases. And we work our hard. We bust our tail. We've been in the league as long as everybody else. And few of us got breaks. More of us need breaks. Uh, I was fortunate to have one at one time. Uh, there's a lot of other guys that need breaks. And you kind of go from there. You coach to be the best coach. And you coach to win and get in the game like you are, like we're in this weekend. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the guys that have done it. Uh, all the coaches on our staff, uh, male, female, African-American, Caucasian, it doesn't matter. We all got there and we have one common cause. But until everybody else stops asking us what's wrong, when everybody knows what's wrong, but like you say, we don't want to speak up for fear of our job. There's a lot of broadcasters that don't want to speak out for fear of their job. And they mm. Happening, and they understand everything that's happening, but they want to hear from us to write their story. You have to, at some point, write your own story and see. You're here, and you're here. When things will start moving, if we say it and you see it because we live it, we're disgruntled or we have a problem or we're bitter or something like that. Nobody wants to hear us talk common sense, but. You know, again, at the end of the day, it's only 32 of them. Everybody's fighting, and they're only going to give certain ones away. And certain teams have, whether it's chemistry, whether it's a feel, whether they want to do a certain thing for their team or have a certain feel for a guy, you know, that's their prerogative right now. And I don't think anybody, anything can be done to change anybody's mind when you have a million-dollar, billion-dollar corporation. You get to pick who runs it regardless of what anybody thinks, you're not going to cave under any pressure to do that for anybody. I think the more people get out that get in front of them and open their eyes, and I don't know how that's becoming possible because there's only a select few that they select from us, but until you put more people out there and keep putting them out there, it's going to be the same. It's a slow-moving process. Uh not as moving as fast as we want. It may not move as fast as the next generation wants, but it's moving beyond what it was and it's not what it is or what nobody would like, but you have to sit there and just work at it every day. There will be days you be frustrated. There are days that you lash out and every day, but at the end of the day, as coaches, we got in the game because we love to coach ball. And as long as you carry that first, 
everything else has to come after that. And we understand what we represent, who we represent, but how we represent them is probably more important. And that's just to be stand-up guys and try to be the greatest coaches we can be. Todd, I want to read you something that Jimmy Ray Jr., who we all know and respect, um, he's been a mentor to a lot of people, um, a lot of black coaches in this league in terms of, of creating paths. I talked to him about this um, last week, and I asked him, how optimistic are you that we're going to see change, that this, this, this playing field will be leveled? And I want to read you what he said and just kind of get your thoughts in terms of how optimistic you are that things will change. And what he said to me, I said, do you see change? Do you see things getting better? And he said, not in my lifetime. No, I don't. He said, there's too much rationalization going on and too much more acceptance in society of white privilege and white supremacy. He said, we've got our hands full right now trying to save the democracy. NFL football is a blip on the radar, so I don't see it. I would like to hope that that would be the case, but it's so disingenuous, so inbred, so deeply embedded in systemic racism that it has no chance. I ask you as a coach who's in this game now, how optimistic are you that we're going to see change in the near future? I think we're going to see change in the near future. I can't tell you how much. It might be 1% or 2% better than what it was, uh, but you will see change in the future. Again, they hired three African-American general managers, uh, and that's a start. You know, that's a start. I I think it's got to be more of starts for everything. I think there has to be more African-American offensive quality control guys and quarterback coaches. I think that there's not enough of them. Those are all the guys that are getting the jobs. I think there needs to be more sprinkled in there as there are quarterbacks coming. You'll see a lot of us as defensive coordinators. You don't see that many on the offensive side of the ball, whether it's a quarterback coach or an offensive quality control guy. Uh, I think it's it's going to move. And again, I don't know how fast. Again, these positions are going to move slowly, but they will move and they're starting to move. You're not going to look for results next week and say, that's what I was talking about. You know, it's going to be glacier progress, as one of my coaches always say. And you got to keep pushing and you got to keep going forward the right way. And it may not, it may be in our lifetime, it may not. You know, you don't know those things and you don't know who's in what's head and who's in somebody's head. As people get older and owners sell teams to different owners, there may be a break in the system or there just may be something that happens. So you hold out hope. And in the meantime, you just do your job and you try to do what you can to go forward to make sure everybody's getting the right example that you're setting by being in that position. So, Jim, did not you hear him talking about glacial progress? Because that's the same stuff our parents told us. It's the same stuff we heard in the 80s and 90s, and now it's resurrected itself in the 2020s. Um, Ty, I want to I want to add this kind of to the equation, because you interviewed in Philly and you interviewed in, in Atlanta. How much did being on the defensive side of the ball, how much when, – when you were getting questioned and, and asked about what you how you lead teams and whatnot – were, do you, did you think if you were handicapped being on the defensive side of the ball? Because I've spoken to some guys who were defensive-minded uh, coaches, so we got interviewed for head coaches, and they said some teams could not get off the offense aspect of the interview. Well, that's all I ask you as a defensive coach. 
you know, they ask you because you're a defensive guy. All they want to know is really who the coordinator, who is the offense, what type of offense would you run? And that, that kind of puts us behind because in a day where the rules have changed and the league has kind of spread out and opened up, it's become more offense. How many points can you score and that, that type of thing? So the defensive coaches kind of get a back seat to begin with. So it's not even a color thing there. It's a defensive coach that gets uh, probably slighted more than an offensive coach. As you can see, it was like five guys on offense, two guys on defense this cycle around. And you say it's going to change every couple of years, but lately it hasn't been. And it's become all offense because it's all about the quarterback. You know, if it's, if it's about the quarterback, they want somebody on offense to run the quarterback. Defensive guys know about the quarterback. One, there are plenty of defensive coaches that's won a bunch of Super Bowls. Belichick, Dungy, Tomlin, Parcells. You can go on hey, and Carol. on. There's a bunch of guys yeah. currently. Carroll is one of them. There's a, guy, a lot of guys that's won Super Bowls, and nobody sees that. The defensive coach can understand what the offense needs and what the offense is doing to recognize that offensive coaches try to put up 50 to 60 points and they let the defensive side slide, but nobody cares about that because they're putting up points. And then you kind of go from there. I mean, so it, it's a little different as a defensive coach going in on an interview and that, that makes it a little tough, but this is the time we're living in. And all you can do is try to be a great defensive coach so you can change minds and try to bring it back a little bit to the defensive side of the ball. I wanted to ask you, you can prepare as much as possible, as best as possible to be a head coach in this league, and yet you will not know. There are some things you just won't know until you sit in that chair. And I wonder if you could speak to, for, say, young coaches who are out there who are trying to get there, Maybe what were some of the things that once you got an opportunity to be a head coach that you look back now and say, man, I wish I would have known that then, you know, what I know now? I think going in, you have to ask the questions of what that team brings to the table for you, not just what you bring to the table for them. You know, as, as coming in as a head coach, somebody offers you a job and you're so excited to take it and look at it that you forget to see if it's the right fit because it's your first time and you don't think you'll get another one, but you need to see what the organization's about. Uh, you need to spend time with the GM, spend time with the people in the building to make sure it's the right fit for you. You need to ask all the questions about support staff and your coaches and everything else. And how are they going to accommodate those guys? And what kind of team are we trying to bring in? Is it an early rebuild or, are we trying to save money? Are we trying to spend money? You need to ask all those questions going in, just like you're the interviewer and not the interviewee. You know, after they get through their questions, it's your turn to interview. I don't think I did as much of that as I thought I should have going into that the first time around. So I think when guys, you know, for us to take jobs, we don't get offered many. So we have to take what's coming right off the top and try to make the best of a situation. But you know, most guys who get head jobs are taking over teams that in some way, shape or form were broken. So you have to ask the right questions and make sure it's the right fit. And you may never get that job, but you have to decide that once you know everything, you know, if you know everything, you still take it. I think that's a good thing. But you have to at least ask those type of questions. We always say on here, Steve, right? All money ain't good money. All, All money jobs ain't good, ain't money. good jobs, you know? Yep. Todd, you know, and you said this Monday, 
uh, at the at media day that having gone through being a head coach with the Jets, there's a lot of things you've learned. We heard a lot, so many coaches say, hey, that first time around, if I would have only known this, this, and this, which I know now, if you get another shot, it like kind of piggybacking off of what were you you were just saying, what would be some of the immediate things that you've got to have your antennas up about going in and what will you know a lot better, be it, you know, towards roster building and things like that, that will help you succeed the next time around? Well, I know a lot about the roster building part as far as the salaries are concerned and who will be expendable and who wouldn't and get rid of a guy early as opposed to keeping them a year too late and understanding the building and who you have to answer to and how things are run in the building. As a head coach, you don't only have to address the team. You have to make sure the building is running properly. You're the voice and you're the face of everything, whether it's the media, the building, business side, you carry a lot of weight and you should treat everybody the same with respect, whether it's the cafeteria people, whether it's the maintenance workers, maintenance workers, whether it's the business people, you treat everybody exactly the same, but you grasp the whole building coming in. You know, as a head coach or a new one not coming in, you know you have to do these things, but you don't know to what extent until you really get in the building, until you have to see what you what kind of culture you have to create. You have to create the culture of the building, not just the team. But you have to change entire basically change an entire city around and give them hope and give them some positivity and make the right moves to make sure that you're successful so they can be successful. And I think going in for the second time around, you know that right off the top. Well, I'll, I'll know what I'm walking into right off the top. And I, it, I'll, I'll know within 10, 15 minutes of the interview uh, what kind of situation it would be. Mm. Todd, when you um, when we talk about these things, I wonder, we had J.C. Treader, we read J.C. Treader, the president of the NFLPA, uh, a few weeks back or a month back, whatever it was. He wrote that what this season with COVID has taught him is that the offseason isn't as necessary as teams have made it out to be in terms of on-field workouts, those sorts of things. I wonder from a coaching standpoint, would you agree with that standpoint that that COVID has taught us this year that you don't necessarily have to have these guys out on the field in the off season to have a successful season um, or to be able to install the things that you want to install? I think COVID has taught us for the most part, uh, spending time with your kids has been the biggest thing COVID has taught us. But from a coaching standpoint, the younger guys need the work. You know, the older guys, some of them don't want, as they go through training camp a couple of years, they're going through the same routine. It's wear and tear on their bodies. But the development of the younger guys are crucial. As coaches, we don't really have a say in all this. But I think the younger guys' development are very crucial. And you don't see it on game day because everybody's technique and fundamentals going down on every team. So it looks like a normal game, but it's really not because you don't develop them as, as quickly as they would develop. You know, I'm not saying they need all of it, but they definitely need some of it and they need a portion of it. But again, as coaches, we don't have say that's between the NFLPA and the NFL to bridge that gap right there. But, you know, we got it going and it took a lot of work from everybody. 
and it was tough. You know, it's tough to Zoom. It's bad enough to meet with people in person to drink <laughs> and, and try to have walkthroughs so on Zoom where they either laying on the sofa or the pillow one way and they're sitting there looking at you or the dog's running around or something like that. That's tough to do for a couple of months. It really is tough to do because when you get them back in the building, you're starting back at square one anyway because they don't see it from a fundamental standpoint. But I think it's very crucial for the younger guys to have an off season, if I have to say Todd, for, for years, you had to come up with a game plan to try to stop Tom Brady. You saw how good he was. When you see him now on your side, working in practice and, and working in the meeting rooms and just being around him, what are maybe some things that you didn't know about him? And just what can you tell us that just makes him so different and so special? This may sound crazy, but the biggest thing I found about Tom, other than his work ethic and his diligence and his precision to be the best, he makes everyone else feel important and feel like superstars. You know, you have superstars that will sign some autographs and walk off. You have guys that will be to themselves and everything else. He can laugh at himself and he can go up to a scout team guy or walk off with a defensive guy or an offensive guy and they can talk football. And by the time you finish talking to him, you will feel like he will feel like you will feel like you're helping him as opposed to him helping you. I mean, he has the most uncanny knack for his people skills are outstanding. His his way the way he includes everyone and in everything that they do and channels it into football into what they do is like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, the person in football far outweighs the player in football and it's a great great player so i think that's helped a lot of guys on our team become professionals i think it's helped them train better i think it's helped them see the game better i think it's helped their focus better on both sides of the ball and i think what he brings to the table from that you can't you know you can't pay enough money for and the fact that he is a great player and he can throw the football on top of that it just makes him extra special you know Todd speaking to that can you speak one of the things I know about Tom from talking to former teammates in in New England is that he is demanding when it comes to practice he is competitive he's meticulous and he is demanding and one thing we know about great players and I don't say this in a negative it's a positive because I think every great player has ego For Tom to come in of his stature and everything else and to have Byron Leftwich, who was once someone who competed against him, now to coach him, what does it say about the job that Byron Leftwich has done to be able to manage ego, expectations, um, the demands that Tom puts on not only teammates but also coaches? I don't think he gets enough credit for, for navigating all those waters as effectively as he has. From a coaching standpoint, can you speak to that about the job that he has done dealing with that? Byron is the most common one over there. I think with all the new people, Brady, Ron, and Burnett, Shady, and Worth, and coming in, and Antonio Brown coming in at different times to put all those pieces together and not still to get to the Super Bowl and going through all the ups and downs and kinks and stay the course. Brian has a way of an ebb and flow 
where he can calm the waters of everybody. And on top of that, he's one of the most intelligent guys I've ever been around. He understands the game. He knows the game. Uh, he can explain the game and teach the game. And he just has a way of tying all the pieces together. And I think that says a lot about him. I can't say enough good things about Byron. Yeah, I, I feel like he, he hasn't gotten his due. I mean, let alone the fact he didn't get an interview during the cycle. But I think back to that championship game and the decision to go for it on fourth down before the end of the half. And then the play after that, the touchdown pass. And I remember watching it on the broadcast and everything was about Bruce's decision and his guttiness to go for it on fourth. And almost as if Bruce made the play call about what they would do there and then what they would do coming out of that first down in terms of throwing the deep ball down the field to Miller. And I'm like, wait a minute, Byron Leftwich calls the plays. And one of the reasons they decided to go for it on fourth down is because they said they believed they had a good play that would work in that situation. So I guess that's that's my way of trying to shine a light or illuminate Leftwich a little bit more and say, as you mentioned earlier about broadcasters, we have to be more diligent in terms of shining a spotlight where it needs to be focused. And I just think that this guy hasn't gotten enough credit for what he's been able to do with this offense, um, particularly this year. And he did a lot with it last year as well. You know, it just got overshadowed by a quarterback who threw 30 interceptions and the team not making the playoffs. But I think he's done a tremendous job the last two years. Now I'm off my soapbox. Really has. It's hard when you have a head coach who was a great offensive coordinator and has a great offensive mind. It's hard when you bring in a legendary quarterback. So obviously the conversation is going to be there. But behind the scenes, Byron does all the grunt work and he makes those plays on Sunday. So he does deserve the credit. But I understand because of the two guys that are a bit larger than life than him. But I think he's, his time is going to be coming real soon. I could have sworn you were going to say it was hard being overshadowed by a wide receiver who's faster than Tyreek Hill. It's hard for me to say anything bad about Tyreek Hill when he ran by us the first game. <laughs> I, you know, I would ask you what was going through your mind in that first quarter, Todd, but I, I think this is a this is a G-rated show, so I, I won't do that. G-rated. <laughs> Hey, I'll tell you that. Okay, so you know Jim and I are both Howard guys, so we got to go out and bring some HBCU love in here. So Doug Williams got you started in coaching, bringing you down to Morehouse and then taking you down to Grambling. What was that experience like coaching at an HBCU where you probably had to coach like five different positions? Oh. <laughs> right? Line the field. Morehouse, and he and we were both scouts at the time. We both he was scouting Jacksonville, scouting Green Bay. We both had the East Coast, and he, he said he's gonna get into coaching. Would I like to be a defensive coordinator? I never coached before. I thought you gotta be kidding me. I'm like there's like a hundred people that would coach for you and go coach in the heart. I said no, I'm not taking that job. He wouldn't stop. He asked me about five times, so I finally said yes. So I said okay. Everybody said I can coach, so let me test it out. So my first job was defensive coordinator at Morehouse. And the first day of practice in the spring, we go out. And I'm coaching the linebackers. I'm they're doing pass drop drills. And the guy had his head turned, so he, just, he couldn't even see me. I was the quarterback. I said, let me see your eyes when you drop. He said, huh? I said, let me see your eyes when you drop. 
he literally took his helmet off and walked up to me almost and opened his eyes about that day. I said, what are you doing? He said, you have to see my eyes. So I said, okay. I said, no, not like that. So then we went to special teams. And put the ball, the kickoff team was out there. I told him, put the ball in the middle of the field. Don't put it on the hash, put the ball in the middle. I, just, I literally said, put the ball in the middle. He picked it up on the 35, and he walked into the midfield. <laughs> See, you got some literal you got some literal learners down at Morehouse, man. I'm out. So I told Coach Rose to take over, and I walked down to Doug, who was down in the end zone, and I walked all the way down there, Dr. Doug. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> So after practice, I think I sat in my office and I stood at the wall for like four hours. Wondering. And back then, you know, I think Love Jones was out back then. And who was that? Deion Ferris had this song called Hopeless. Like a yeah. hole in it. Like a penny with a hole in it. <laughs> and then I regrouped and I came back out. And it was actually one of the most fun times I ever had. We didn't have too many great athletes, but they were highly intelligent. And they would run through a brick wall for me. And I, I had a great time at Morehouse. And then going to Grambling was just the opposite. I had a ton of athletes. They were great athletes. And Doug made me like the punishment guy. So <laughs> I was not from Louisiana. So Doug said, you guys can go home. You're off on Friday. So where am I go? I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> you got to tell me ahead of time so I can get a ticket. So... I did a bunch of odd jobs. You know, I drove the Deltas to a stepping convention. I was like security at a juvenile concert where Master P and them came up. For what? Oh, wow. Yeah, I did a whole bunch of things. <laughs> oh, wow. No. You were security at a juvenile Master P concert? It was one of the best times I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. How old were you? How old were you? I had to be about 34, 35, maybe. Oh, you were up, weren't you? I, I had to learn the music first, and then I... What am I listening to? Yes. Yes. Preach. Preach. From the band. You and Jim. You and Jim. Jim would have been the same way. The yeah. band. Stand up at the basketball games. Oh my God. And they started playing uh, uh, Mia X and then the party don't stop. And the whole, I was like, oh my God. And look at you now. Now you're coaching in the Super Bowl. Right. Now you're coaching the Super Bowl. Hey, hey. man. Hey, Todd, that, the night before the game, you got to sit up there and get the guys all riled up. I used to do security at the Master P concert. Oh, it was, and now I'm here. It was, you can make it. It was funny. <laughs> Todd, I want to ask you this. I, I know we're having fun here, but on a serious note, what is it about coaching that you love so much? I love the X's and O's. You know, for me, it's all about getting into somebody's head. I love the challenges and every week what they represent. Sometimes you go after the quarterback. Sometimes you go after the lineman. Sometimes you go after the running back. Sometimes you go after the receivers. Or sometimes you try to put yourself in the head of the offensive coordinator and become a coordinator. And it's a challenge every week. And you have to 
I like the mystique of it. I like the mysteriousness of it. I like the game approach from that standpoint. It's very challenging. It's like playing chess 10 times over, and I'm a horrible chess player. I'm learning how to play chess. I have a chess board in my office, and I think I only made one move probably in a year and a half, and it's just sitting there. But I love the gymnastics of it, of thinking three, four, and five steps ahead, and that's how I try to coach, and I think it's something that drives me every day, and football's been probably a part of my life since I've been born, and it's got me to where I am right now, and I just love doing it, and I'll continue to do it. That's awesome. Great hey, if you if you would have played chess after my guy put the football on the middle of the field down at Morehouse, you would have played like 72 games instead of just making one move. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Todd. Hey, man. We appreciate this. This has been a blast. This has been like a stone cold. What Don Cornelius you say? A stone cold blast. So, man, look, we want to wish you luck on Sunday. We really appreciate you taking some time out of a busy week to spend with Jim and I. No problem at all, guys. Come on, Steve. How many people out there actually knew that Todd Bowles was a security guard at a juvenile Master P concert or was the chauffeur for the Deltas? I mean, we learn something new every time we do one of these shows. But I can honestly say that was something I never expected to hear. <laughs> we did not see that coming. We didn't. Hey, man, I could just see Todd because he's just so he's like so just kind of this quiet, steady dude running security. And, you know, juveniles up there talking about shake your ass. Watch yourself. <laughs> but, but wait, wait, wait. Even better than that, Steve, the story is about starting out and coaching at Morehouse. I mean... <laughs> I just, I, it was all I could do not to just slam my computer down, you know, just laughing. It just, as you said on the show, his players were literal learners. When he says, I want to see your eyes when you drop back. And he walks up to him and takes his helmet off and bugs his eyes so Todd can see. I just, Jim, I couldn't have, if that, I, if I that dude took one snap, if that dude played one snap. Come I would on, man. Be I'd have been done. <laughs> done for the day. If I'm the coach, I'm done for the day, you know? See, and look, it's kind of music to our ears because, you know, we're from the Mecca. We're arrogant Howardites. And, you know, people from more, I'm a Morehouse man. And we're like, so? You know, so like, <laughs> you know, so when we hear that stuff, it only adds, it only adds to the so. Come on, Steve. Come on now. We I ain't going to go that far. Yeah, we got to respect our Morehouse brothers. Of course, we love them, bro. So, Look, you know? we love them, but, you know, that was just another instance of so. I mean, I'm sure that's going to be a real prideful moment when they when they hear this, like, I'm a Morehouse man. Uh, but who was that cat who took off his helmet and showed Todd his eyes? No, no, no. <laughs> who, is, who is the cat who picked up the ball and carried it to midfield when he Kicker. said put it in the middle of the field? Oh, the, dude, the dude the dude probably owns like 15 banks somewhere exactly, exactly. Yeah, go ahead so i'm good you know i figured that part out so exactly. but it's funny you know when we have an interview like this that where we're talking to the guy who is trying to stop patrick mahomes who is trying to stop the most high-powered offense in the nfl and spending all of his days like this and we end up talking about how he was driving the deltas to his step show 
Bro, this is the best podcast in the world, man. You know, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to have that kind of freedom and latitude, Steve. It really is. This is it. Well, Jim, why don't you go ahead and bring us home uh, as we prepare? We're gonna we, we're du- we're double dipping. We're gonna have a, a second Buccaneer on a little bit later this week too, Jim. Yes, sir. And this one, he's he's one of my favorites too. Just um, a classy, intelligent gentleman, and one of the greatest players to ever play in the NFL. That's Hall of Fame linebacker Derek Brooks who lives in Tampa. Um, We'll talk to him about the Super Bowl matchup as well as being a co-host of, you know, the Super Bowl in your hometown. So we just want to say to you again, as we always do, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We appreciate your support. Please leave us messages in terms of what it is you would like to hear, who you would like us to have on, what topics you you would like addressed. That way, we can continue to give you more of what you're funking for. And Jim, we can also continue to give you more of what you're funking for. Thanks to our sponsor, Intuit. Much love to them for taking the time and the money and the effort to keep us rocking and rolling. Remember, Intuit, the proud makers of TurboTax, QuickBooks, and Mint. All right, Jim, we're getting ready to get get rocking and rolling. I mean, that interview just has me on another plane Thank you, Todd Bowles. Thank you our, to our producers, Stephen Manny on the ones, Thomas Warren on the twos. For Jim Trotter and I'm Steve White. We're the Howard Mob, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.